Welcome to episode one of this mini-series on arms control and disarmament. I'm your host, Ashley Mueller with the Geneva Center for Security Policy, and in this episode, we will look at an overview of arms control and disarmament, and data for arms control and disarmament verification, with Marc Finot, Head of Arms Proliferation at the GCSP. Marc Finot, you have experience in arms control and disarmament negotiations. How can you briefly summarize the existing international architecture dealing with these issues? For uh, weapons of mass destruction, let's talk first about nuclear weapons. There are th- the three main multilateral instruments are the Non-Proliferation Treaty, adopted in uh, 1968 and entered into force in 1970, which recognizes five nuclear weapon states, China, France, Russia, the UK and the US, which uh, agreed not to transfer nuclear weapons, but also agreed to eliminate their weapons eventually. And the non-nuclear weapon states agree uh, not to acquire nuclear weapons in exchange for this uh, nuclear disarmament, but also cooperation in peaceful uses of nuclear energy. And there is an agency monitoring compliance uh, with these commitments by the non-nuclear weapon states, which is the International Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna. Then there is the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, CTBT, adopted in 1996, but still not in force because it lacks ratification by a number of nuclear and non-nuclear weapon states. But it has an organization, the CTBTO, also based in Vienna, which monitors compliance with uh, the, the treaty. And finally, there is a most recent instrument, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, adopted in 2017, but which should enter into force soon after 50 ratifications. In addition, there are a number of nuclear weapon-free zones throughout the world, uh, in the Antarctic, Latin America, Africa, Southeast Asia, South Pacific, and Central Asia. For biological and chemical weapons, there used to be the Geneva Protocol of 1925, which banned the use of these weapons in war uh, only. Uh, But then there was the 1972 Biological and Toxin Weapons Convention that prohibited uh, those weapons altogether. And the Chemical Weapons Convention in 1993 that also prohibited chemical weapons and that has a verification regime monitored by the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, the OPCW, based in The Hague. Now, if we talk about conventional weapons, that means all the rest, there are a number of instruments as well. And uh, there was a regional approach uh, in Europe after the Cold War, the Conventional Forces in Europe Treaty that led to massive disarmament and also the series of documents on confidence and security building measures within the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. But these instruments are now challenged by tensions in Europe. At the global level, there are also uh, instruments such as the 2001 UN Program of Action on Small Arms and Light Weapons. Uh, There is the a firearms protocol, there is the international tracing instrument, and 
more recently the Arms Trade Treaty that regulates trade in conventional armaments. To this you can add the Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons or Inhumane Weapons uh, with five additional protocols, uh, the Anti-Personal Landmine Ban Treaty, the Cluster Munitions Convention and also the Hague Code of Conduct against Ballistic Missile Proliferation. Now, for WMD, there are a number of export control regimes or non-proliferation regimes, such as the Nuclear Supplies Group or the Australia Group. And for conventional weapons, there is the Vassenaar Arrangement and uh, the Missile Technology Control Regime. Among the international instruments that you mentioned dealing with various categories of weapons, many require either exchanges of information among the state's parties or collection and processing of data to verify compliance with their commitments. Can you give examples of such cases and the difficulties they may encounter? In the first category, uh, one may include the reporting obligations that are uh, included in some of the uh, instruments about implementation of, of commitments. For instance, in the UN Program of Action on Small Arms and Light Weapons, states are supposed to report regularly on what they do to implement their commitments. Now, in practice, they do it every two years, which is good enough. Some do it less, some don't even report anything, which is worrying. Uh, in the Arms Trade Treaty, there are legal obligations first to report once at the initial report on measures taken to implement the treaty and then every year annual report on exports and imports. Now it was revealed by the Secretariat of the Arms Trade Treaty at the last conference of state parties that 24% of state parties still haven't sent their initial report while the treaty has been in force already for six years and out of those that sent their reports the annual reports only 47 percent have sent them in time so and then there, there's a, it's a declining trend and there's also an increasing trend of the number of reports that are kept uh, away from the public that are kept confidential so it's it's a worrying trend uh, you know for the sake of transparency which doesn't allow parliaments or civil society to exercise their oversight. In the other category, uh, in terms of data of verification of arms control and disarmament agreements, of course, when this is mandated to international organizations, uh, those organizations require to collect data either from the states parties, the member states, or from other sources, uh, including their own investigations or on-site inspection. This is the case for the IAEA, uh, which um, monitors uh, nuclear safeguards, uh, or the OPCW for chemical weapons, or the CTBTO for uh, nuclear testing. Uh, for instance, there was the case when the IAEA, because it lacked this information, this data, was not able to detect the Iraqi secret nuclear weapons program and this is based on this experience that a new instrument was developed called the additional protocol allowing the agency to inspect 
even undeclared activities or facilities. So uh, if you take the case of biological weapons, there is no organization, there are actually no verification regime for uh, the, the convention. So if a state uh, was a victim of attack by biological weapons, uh, the only solution left would be to require the Secretary General of the United Nations to conduct an investigation, fact-finding mission. Of course, uh, and for this, there, are, there is a, a roster of experts that could assist the Secretary General. If you take the bilateral treaty be, between the United States and Russia, the New START Treaty, it, is, it includes uh, an extensive exchange of data and on-site inspection. The treaty has been in, in force for 10 years now. Uh, and over this uh, period, over 20,000 exchanges of data and inspections have taken place. And the question now is whether this treaty will be extended or replaced with another one. And if it's not, then there is a, a major loss of mutual information and mutual confidence that the uh, treaty is complied with. So in all these cases, the main challenge is transparency vis-a-vis -vis the public, of course, but also restricted at, uh, uh, with uh, relevant states, accuracy of data, timely transmission, and processing in case of suspicion of non-compliance with the treaties. That's all we have now for this episode. Thank you to Mark Finot for joining us for this mini-series. Click the next button to listen to episode two, where we discuss the role of parliaments in arms control and disarmament. In the meantime, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or iTunes, or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast player and follow us across all of our social media channels. Click the next button to get to the next episode.